Hello everyone, this is Michelle Bonzek here with My I Suggest, and this week we have my very lovely friend Anna Waldron with us. She is a stand-up comedian, uh, she is a podcaster with um, Adapted with Anna and Sam, uh, she is a mama and an actress, and a sass mouth, according to her Twitter. I hope that you have as much fun listening as I did recording. Anna, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So the first thing that we're going to talk about today is the movie Clue. (sighs) I'm ready. (laughs) Excellent. So it came out in 1985, and it was directed by Jonathan Lynn, uh, who also directed My Cousin Vinny, another quality movie Another quality comedy, although I have mixed feelings about My Cousin Vinny. Really? Yeah, but it, not because of the movie itself, just because um, this is just so random. I had a roommate my freshman year of college who couldn't go to sleep without having something playing on the TV. Mm-hmm. And we had like three VHS, she had like three VHSs, and it was my cousin Vinny, and I don't even remember what the other thing was now that she would watch, but she would just put it on, go to sleep, fall asleep and then when the vhs stopped kids vhs's or what we had before dvds which is what we had before digital media ask your grandparents so (laughs) the vhs would run out and then it would just be like static and that would wake me up and i'd have to get out of my bed to go and turn it off and i hated that bitch so much and so just i didn't watch my cousin vinny my cousin vinny for like years but i heard it yeah every night and so i have just like a physical reaction to it i get it i'm sorry i brought it up i am sorry too and this is ruined i'm good i'm just, i'm leaving now oh no, no i'm just kidding i'm just kidding. we have so much more podcast but like it to is do. but it is a good movie and it's a great comedy and like marissa Tony yeah. won an oscar for it oh she's brilliant in it yeah my biological clock is ticking like this she's amazing mm-hmm. um anywho uh so Jonathan Lynn... That's what we were talking about. Yeah, Jonathan Lynn directed. Um, and it's based on... And I think I was trying to find in research, but I believe that this is the first movie that was based on a board game. I I would assume that as well. Yeah. I couldn't find anything to uh, the contrary, so... There's like a silent film out there of like Stratego. <laughs> I, I, I want that to be true. I will never watch it. How dare Strategio. Whatever it's called. Um, So it is, um, it came out in 1985 and was like not well received. Mm -mm, And uh, it it was a complete bomb. I think that they made like $2 million less than what they put into it. And And that's a 1985 money. Right. Yeah. So that's like real different money than today. Um, But when they sent the movie out to theaters they sent each theater a different ending and so each theater would be playing the movie with only one ending and it wasn't until 86 when the when the vhs came out and it home went video. to home video and this is like i think when home video was really just peaking too yes the it was like the sweet spot mm-hmm. of home video Everyone had a VCR or could rent one from their Blockbuster. Mm -hmm. So um, it wasn't until that point that they put together all three endings into one Mm -hmm. um, extended cut. And that's the only way I've ever seen this movie. Ditto. And I can't imagine only seeing one ending. 
Yeah, I... And leaving being satisfied. I I feel... We were jumping... I mean, we're jumping to the end right now, and I do want to talk more about kind of the the lead-up, but I think a lot of the flaws of this film are washed away when you have this... Well, you have to have a story that fits all three possible versions. Mm -hmm. And then when you have all three possible versions and you see how every cleverly everything fits into the different scenarios, it's genius. But if you only presented one, it's like all that work to get there. But when you see all three, it's like, oh, my um, it's 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 like, um, you know, it's not a one dimensional puzzle. It's a three dimensional puzzle. And once you see that and you see the complexity that goes into making each of those three endings work, it's so much smarter and it's so much more impressive. Yeah. And it's funnier, too, because you also have the the cadence of the repeated jokes. Mm -hmm. So the thing that is a joke in the in ending one is then a repeated joke in ending two, but it's a different person saying it. Yes. And that lands so much harder. Well, and I love that. And again, we're going to start at the beginning and like kind of go through the movie. And this doesn't spoil anything really, but it, all three endings, the only real through line is um, communism was always a red herring. Yes! And it's like, so smart. It's so smart and so dumb. And so in all of the best ways and that is like in one of the so i love this movie and one of the reasons i love this movie is because it hits my personal type of like favorite comedy Mm -hmm. um it's very very smart incredibly witty it's smart but dumb at the same time so stupid yeah well, it doesn't, you know what it is? No, it's not that it's dumb. It's that it doesn't take itself seriously. Yes. It's very invested in being a very silly comedy. Yeah. It's exactly. very silly. Mm-hmm. So uh, the movie itself takes place in 1954 in New England somewhere. And the film starts with Tim Curry's character. I love him. I love him so much. I love him so much. He is a divinely talented actor who I love him in everything he's in and he's been in some really terrible things. But he is an actor who you you see him in something like um uh you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show and you're like, "Oh my god, this is this is such an intense strong performance. I can't see him as anything else." And then you see him in this and you're like, "Oh my god, that's a, how is that the same person?" Like he mm-hmm. he loses himself in a role but he's but he's not but he's not forgettable either it's it's yeah. it's this strange thing he's incredibly essential as a performer he's physical he's funny as hell yeah and that voice right? i love him same well but also i think that there's something really special and unique about him mm-hmm. and not a lot of actors fall into this category for mm-hmm. me um i don't feel like a lot of people can lose themselves entirely in a role and make you forget all of their other performances like he can. Yeah. And it's, I feel like a lot of people who lose themselves in their roles, they themselves, when they're not in a role are kind of forgettable. And that's what I mean. Like he's not, Yes, he's mm-hmm. not at all. Right. He brings such intensity to everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick Offerman is someone who is in the same category for me. Oh, interesting. Okay. And I didn't think so because I, so I love him in parks and recreation. Yeah, um, but then I saw him come to Boston and do a stage performance of a uh, poop. Oh, I've never heard of that show. It's not the. That's not the name of the show. Damn, I'm excited. <laughs> oh boy, uh, Confederacy of Dunces. 
Oh, okay. Is that it? I think that that was it. Dear listener, <laughs> tell me if I'm wrong. You can fix that in post. Everything's fine. <laughs> so he became the title character, and I just completely forgot about Ron Swanson, which wow. is insane because Ron Swanson is such a memorable, important character, mm-hmm. especially given how much I love that particular show myself. Right, yeah. It was fantastic and incredible. I was so impressed. Wow. I've also seen him do stand-up a few times. And, um, he's, and he's, you went to see the show he does with his wife, too, right? Yes. Yeah. I saw them when they came to Boston to do uh, their tour, <laughs> the summer of 69, no apostrophe. Oh, I get it. Yep. I get it. There you go. Yep. Um, And they are amazing together. I love them so much. And he just is incredible. And his his books are great. I'm a big fan of him. But this is about Tim Curry. Yeah, let's go back to him. Yeah. Fantastic. (laughs) So, um, I'm sure Nick Offerman would agree with us that Tim Curry is fantastic. Uh, Yeah, because he's a smart person who understands how life works. Mm -hmm. So... Tim Curry plays Wadsworth, and he's the butler of this big old mansion, and he works for Mr. Body, uh, or he used to work for Mr. Body, apparently, and is seeking justice for his wife, who... Although we don't find this out until... Very late in the game. Yeah. Oh, have I said too much? There's a lot of layers to who these people present themselves as. So he presents himself as the butler, and uh, it kind of like... It starts with him pulling up to the house and, like, feeding the dogs and then chains them up. And then there he steps in dog poop and there's, like, this big running gag as he, like, walks through the house to introduce you to the other characters who are already in the home. Yeah. Where everyone is, like... He's, he's, he scrapes his... He stepped on the dog poop. He yeah. scrapes his foot by the door and then everyone who comes in the house, they smell and check their shoes to see if yes. they stepped in the dog poop. <laughs> and it's, it's just... And you that's know, and that's a running the, gag. Exactly. And that's the dumb stuff that I'm like, that's very funny because it's paired with such mm-hmm. high wit and cleverness. Yes. So we meet a vet, she's pouring champagne. She is the um the maid. The maid of the house. And we meet Cook, which I think she never gets a real name. She's just she's cook. just cook. Uh and then Colonel Mustard shows up first. Martin Mall. Yes. Um oh, he's this whole cast. The cast is incredible. They're amazing. Everyone here, everyone in this cast, um, a, a lot of them might not be household names outside of certain <laughs> certain houses, but like... <laughs> yes. Are both of our houses, I feel like. Yeah, I can, All of like, them are household I mean, names, but we have different but, houses. But Madeline Kahn, Martin Mall, Leslie Ann Warren, I, I mean, these are... Christopher Lloyd Christopher plays Lloyd. Professor Plum. These are all fantastically talented comic performers. Yeah. Oh. Eileen Brennan. Eileen Brennan is great. She might be my favorite person in the whole movie. She's so good. Yeah. And I'm I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I think one of the reasons why I love this movie so much and why it's so impactful for me is all of the performances are so well developed. Mm-hmm. And all of these characters... Their motivations and everything they... Their motivations make sense and everything they do is grounded in who they are as a person. Yeah. And, like, this annoys me sometimes when you watch a dumb comedy and you're like, he just did that because it's funny. It doesn't make sense. Yes. And this movie, like, all of that dumb shit 
is grounded in, but this is how Mr. Green is. Exactly. And the fact that they do that mm-hmm. when there are layers of deception yeah. on top of that, like, it's so good. All right, I, I keep interrupting. No, you're not. You're doing we just We just met Cook. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, eventually everybody shows up at the house and they all... Um, are it's pouring rain out so it like sets the stage for things and then they um they all go in to go and have dinner and they're all sitting around and they're asking about um who the seventh seat is for and Wardsworth says oh that's for Mr. Body he's the one who invited you all here of course Mm -hmm. and they're like Wait, what? <laughs> you know. Yeah, they thought Mr. Body was their host, but maybe he's not. Right. Throughout the introductions to all of the new characters, there's like weird looks between people mm-hmm. who clearly are like recognizing that they know these people or like but don't a, maybe everyone is suspicious yeah. of everyone. Else. Exactly. And over dinner they find out that most of them or all of them live in D.C. and or are a part of government mm-hmm. affairs. Um, and then Mr. Body arrives and it's discovered that they are locked in now. And everybody's like, what? What would do? What? Why is that happening? And then they end up going into the study and everyone's kind of getting their brandy. And Wordsworth announces that they're all being blackmailed and that's why, they be, that's why they're here. So Professor Plum is has slept with one of his patients. He was a psychologist um, or a psychiatrist. I don't remember I think he's a psychiatrist, but I don't know the difference. I don't. uh, One can give drugs and one can, like, one can um, do prescriptions. But neither should sleep with their patients. Right. And, in fact, it's literally against all of the rules. Yeah. So, um, and then Miss Peacock uh, has accepted uh, bribes because her husband is a senator or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so she uh, has accepted bribes uh, bribes from people to kind of sway his vote and get information. Uh, Miss Scarlet runs a brothel. Uh, Colonel Mustard has money that he shouldn't based on his job because he's he a is, war profiteer. Yeah. And uh, Miss White killed her husband. At least one of her husbands. At least one of them. Mr. Green um, is gay, and apparently that is very not okay in 1954. Yeah. Um, they also have a really great gag that I love because I'm an English teacher. Um, there's a big double negative yes, thing yeah. in this scene, which is mwah, fucking chef's kiss. Um, so then... Double negative? You have... That means proof positive. Yeah. Wait, you, have, you have negatives? <laughs> it's just so fun. So, and then Mr. Body is like, now that you're all here and we're all underway, I have presents for everyone. And he gives Miss Scarlet the candlestick, Miss White the rope, Mr. Green the lead pipe, Mr. Plum the gun, Colonel Mustard the wrench, and Miss Peacock the knife. And then the lights go out. Well, no, he says the oh the only right. way to get get um to keep from having yourselves exposed is to kill Wadsworth right now. And then he turns the lights off. That's right. And then. There's a body down, screams, the lights come back up, and Mr. Body is on the ground. Right. Not Wadsworth. Correct. Mrs. Peacock loses her crap. She does! And (laughs) is, like, screaming and in a daze. um, And, like, 
uh, she like drops her brandy glass right, and says, everything. Maybe, maybe he was poisoned. And she oh, drops right. it and she starts screaming. That's what it is. And then Mr. Green slaps her. Yeah. <laughs> Which like, I don't. I had to stop her screaming. Yeah. I'm not a proponent of any sort of violence. But it was a very funny moment. It shouldn't have been. I hate it. I hate laughed. I hate laughed at it. But I did laugh. Well, what's <clears throat> the moment itself? What's really important about that is that later when they're recreating this scene, yes, because that's the genius of this movie. Is everything in the first third or half? They then retrace their steps and act out again. Yes, <laughs> and it's. It's it just is. is so fun because you know what's coming next, mm-hmm. but they have like different people doing the slapping and different things, like different different people acting as other people, and it's just so fun. And Wadsworth doing an impression of Green, <laughs> yes, is so insulting and yes. great. Then there is a scream, and everyone runs out of the room and into. The billiard room, I believe it is. Yeah. And she just got upset because she heard what was happening because she well, was listening in. Because Yvette also drank the cognac and was worried that she would be poisoned. Right. Is what she says. <laughs> yes. And then um, she goes, mon dieu. <laughs> Sorry, what does she, she do? She goes, mon dieu. <laughs> She's French. She's, it's I, important that we know that. I get it. <laughs> and then at this point, we that's when we find out that Wadsworth's wife killed herself mm-hmm. because she had also been blackmailed by body this one's weird to me it's because she had socialist friends well yeah this is the height of the red scare and mccarthyism yes but like he didn't apparently have any proof that she was a socialist and i was like she just like has dinner sometimes with some people who like like weird shit yeah a lot of people like they're just their careers were destroyed just because they hung out with socialists and like I, I don't, I mean, it might be a little bit of a stretch and I'm willing to make, make allowances for this film, <laughs> but I mean, just some of the other things that I've heard about, like famous playwrights and, and actors who, who never worked again because they were caught up in, in that, in that red scare. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of ink spilled about the horrible repercussions of, of McCarthy and Senator McCarthy and his witch hunt. That's fair. Um, I just thought it was really strange. Like, everybody else's stuff seems, like, so juicy. Yeah. And, well, and you have to wonder, of yeah. course, what is Wadsworth not saying? Like, she had friends who were socialists. Right. But, like, but it, it may have been a little bit more than that. Or what, is, what yeah. does that really mean? But, I mean, it's... A lot of people's lives were destroyed by association. You're not so. wrong. I acquiesce. Good job. Oh, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> So then they all decide to run into the kitchen to find Cook. And they're like, oh, she's not here. And then Mr. Green opens the, uh, the door fridge. to the fridge. The, the freezer. The so, it's, yeah, the freezer. it's the freezer. Yeah. And that's where her, her body, body comes, comes out, out. And there's a knife sticking at her back. And he catches her. And then they both like go to the <laughs> floor somebody, slowly. Somebody help me. Somebody yeah. help me. And then it just falls over. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And then comes my favorite line, maybe in any movie in the history of movies, Mrs. White says, now mind you, she had five different husbands. 
Husbands should be like tissues, soft, strong, and disposable. Yes. And as someone who's probably dying alone, I do believe that about men. <laughs> soft, strong, disposable. Also a great line where she's arguing with Colonel Muster, and Colonel Muster's like, you lure men to their death like a spider with flies. And she says, flies are where men are most, most vulnerable. <laughs> and like, as a kid, I never got that line. I was only re-watching that movie as an adult. I was like, oh my god, it's a dick joke. <laughs> Men are most vulnerable. <laughs> I get it, because they're pants. Because that's where their penises are, and if you hit them in their penis, they cry. Yeah, they don't True like story. it. story. Weird. <laughs> Nobody likes a good dick punch, apparently, anymore. <laughs> um, McCarthy ruined that for us, too. <laughs> McCarthyism is why we can't have good dick punches. Mm. <laughs> I say it all the time. We're, and now we're ten minutes into the movie. <laughs> Go on. I apologize for this I'm podcast so being eight hours long. It's me. It's my fault. Um, nope, you're perfect, and I adore you. I adore you. So then, um, uh, uh, they go back into um, the study, and Body's body is gone. It's just, there's no body. Mr. Body's body is gone. I'm gonna just quote this movie now. This is what's gonna happen. Uh, I'm just gonna act listener, it out for you. you can't see this because you're listening and not here with us but i am not mad at all <laughs> that's not a mad face not my mad face so then uh mrs peacock is like i gotta pee this is crazy and goes to open the bathroom door where she finds mr body's body yeah it just like falls on her right and, and she has the best scream <sighs> her scream eileen brennan's scream is so good because it's like she ah! is a queen she is brilliant oh, she's so underrated. fucking love her um, and so, and it kind of mirrors Mr. Green f- having the, yes. um, the cook's body fall on. It's just, I just love physical comedy. Mm-hmm. And this movie does it so well. So, um, and then she like puts the body down and she's like all like woozy and like upset. And so, uh, Wordsworth is like, fall into my arms. Like he's going to catch her. And instead he, she just like sinks through his arms to <laughs> the ground right into the ground to the floor it's great um and then they go through like a whole uh series of things where they're like gonna lock up everything and uh, lock up all of the weapons in a cabinet and then they throw the they go to throw the um throw the, key the key out yeah. the win- out the, the front door but then <laughs> Uh, they open the door to do so, and there's a guy whose, like, car was stranded at the side of the road. Mm-hmm. And he's like, can I use the phone to call, you know, for a ride or whatever? And so they, like, bring him in, they, like, lock him in the lounge, and then they go and they throw the key out the front door, and then they're like, we all need a drink. <laughs> and I'm like, I get it. <laughs> Understand. Yeah. So then they decide that they're going to, like... Search the house to make sure. Right, because maybe there's a killer on the loose. Right, and they're like, maybe somebody's been hiding in the mansion. We're going to split up. So they do uh, the really oh, cool God, yes. um, thing where they draw, like... They, uh, they have eight straws. They cut them into yes. four different lengths, and so everyone has a matched pair. Yes. And they do take them at random, and then the, the whole... I think it's a wordless scene where they each find out who they're matched with and yes. all of their reactions is so good. Exactly. Like, finally, the last two, it's Mrs. Peacock. Maybe it's not the last ones. Mrs. Peacock gets matched up with Colonel Mustard and she's, 
No, Ugh. Peacock is with Plum. That's what it is. And they go oh, and to she, have to search the basement. Yes. Oh, it's yes. oh, it's it's uh, Scarlet is with Mustard. Yes, That's what it is. Which mm-hmm. she's all. None of the women like who they're matched with. None of them. <laughs> yep. Mrs. White is with Wadsworth, and Yvette is with Mr. Green. And so, uh, White and Wadsworth are doing like the second floor. Scarlet and Mustard are doing the ground floor, and then Yvette and Green are going up to the attic. Mm-hmm. They have on, one of my other favorite scenes in the movie where. Neither one of them want to go up into the attic yes. first. And so they're like, let's go at the same time. So then they just are like bumping each other aggressively yeah. as they walk up like, like the like, seven you, you steps. Go. No, you go. And he's like, you're not going. Mm-hmm. She's like, I'll be right behind you. And he's like, that's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> I think my favorite line is um, Mustard. And this might be my favorite line in the whole movie. Mustard and Peacock are going into the basement. It's like, what are you afraid of? A fate worse than death? No, just death. Isn't that enough? <laughs> Like, it's so good. Um, just, yeah. just watch this movie. <laughs> just do it. If you haven't watched it already, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Also, if you're listening to this, I hope that you've seen it, because we're literally telling you the whole movie pretty much. Just pause the podcast, watch it now, you'll yeah. thank us later. Yeah. Best hour and a half of black and white moviness. It's not black and white. Yeah. Clue isn't black and white. It's in color. Is it? Yes. Yeah, because... Because uh, Miss Scarlet is wearing that, like, peacock green dress. Oh, right. I'm and a stupid bitch. You're not. You're not. <laughs> I might you've cut just, that part out because I throwing... sound real dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Cut it for time. <laughs> That's exactly what I'll do. Mm-hmm. Cut it for time. Great. Um, Since you're already cutting this section out. Yes. Every time I make a mistake and I say to Sam, oh, cut that out, she doesn't on purpose. <laughs> because she is the editor and she gets... <laughs> To leave in all the stuff where I sound like a stupid idiot. That's amazing. Yeah. I love a lot of that. All right. And we're back. back up now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so they're doing the house search and it's very suspenseful and everybody, it's all like dark and yeah, like. Yeah, and the music is great. Oh, yeah. The score in this movie is really lovely. So phenomenal. So then the lounge guy gets killed with the wrench and um, and the way they do the cinematography is smart. You never see who does it. You see a gloved right. hand. Mm-hmm. You see the wrench get lifted. And then um, the uh, Scarlet and, Mo- and Colonel Mustard uh, find some ske- secret passages. And then there's shouts and the door and like everybody comes like running because they you have the dead guy. And then the doorbell rings and everyone's like, oh, shit. And so then Mr. Green opens the door, and oh, it's no, no. the police officer. Yeah, but they, they have to shoot the door to get it open. Oh, right. Yvette shoots the door right, to the lounge because yeah. it's locked. And that whole, let us in, let yeah. us in, let, <laughs> and us, then, out, well, let, let us, us out. It's so great. Yep. Um, and so then they put the police officer uh, in the library, and uh, <laughs> the cop answers the phone, and it's J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. Which, I don't understand. Like, I mean, when it comes to the ending, I get it. But, like, he just, like, chats with J. Edgar Hoover. Well, no, he's on the phone with someone else. And then is like, gotta go, I'm on the other line. Like, I don't, yeah. It was very silly. Um, And then, 
Uh, the cop, like, goes around and, like, searches the mansion with Mr. Green, and they, like, that's where they orchestrate oh, yeah, everything. yeah, they, they fake that they're, like, having a makeout party. Yeah, so, like, this is, like, a swinger's mansion. Out, like, the dead bodies. Yeah, so, like, uh, Mrs. White, like, just, like, throws herself on top of Mr. Body's body and is, like, Ugh. Oh, yeah, she, she's doing the thing where, like, she's, she's got her hand under his elbow, so she's making it yes. look like his hand is on the back of her head. Exactly. And then, um... So disgusting. Uh, well, that one's not, I think, as bad as, um, uh, Cook being held yes. up by, Colonel um, Mustard's got her, in, he's in front of her, and Peacock's behind. Behind the curtain, holding no, her. And she's going, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Eileen Brennan is a genius. Yeah, if you learn nothing from today, I hope you go away with, she's incredible. She's <laughs> a comic genius. May she rest in peace. I know. Yeah. R.I.P. So then the cop goes to use the phone, and then um, everybody else goes back to searching the house. That's where uh, Mustard and Scarlet find another secret passage. Yep. And then the lights cut out and um, Yvette runs downstairs into the billiard room and she's whispering to somebody and it's like, they recognized me and someone else. They're not the only one. Yeah. And then a rope gets slipped around her neck and she's... And she says, it's you! Yeah. <laughs> Which like, ha! Oh, that's such good writing! That's suspenseful! Yeah. And then it immediately cuts to the cop on the phone and a pipe, the lead, the pipe. lead pipe, hits the phone like to hang up the, the line. Mm-hmm. And then the, then the cop is dead. Then it cuts again to the doorbell ringing mm-hmm. and the door just opens. And this yes. is the thing that I quote in my life most often, <laughs> which is so dumb. And so random and completely out of context of everything else in my life. <laughs> but it, here we are. The door opens and it's a woman like, looking like a candy striper from a hospital. And she goes, I am your singing telegram. Bam! And then is just shot and the door closes. That's it. That's all. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I am your singing telegram. Bang! Boom. So good. Ugh. And then it cuts again and it's... <laughs> Warsworth in the dark and he is trying to find his way out of the room and he turns the shower on to himself. So and when then they... he's running back down the stairs, squish, 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 yeah. squish, squish, squish. So then the lights come back on and they all come like flooding downstairs to the ground floor again and he's sopping wet. <laughs> and so then uh, they find um, Yvette is dead and the cop is murdered in the study and they're like, oh my gosh. And then they open the door and they find the, the dead girl and they're like, Three murders, that brings our total to six. This is getting serious. I, what yeah. I love about this whole sequence is they're all, they're back together. They find the three bodies in a row, but like this is the fourth, fifth, and sixth body they're finding, and they're just so nonplussed. Mm-hmm. Nothing, they're not shocked anymore. They're just like, oh, yep. And like they see the, they see the event, they see the cop, and then someone goes, I thought I heard the door. So did I. And then they, <laughs> it's at the door. All right, there's another one. Like it's just so, they're like, yeah. they're so traumatized. They have no, shock or emotion left to give right it's so good they're literally they're only like i guess we put her in the study too yeah you know they're, they're, they're and they're just dragging dead bodies yeah, around just, the house they drop them yeah they, the body and they just drop it the poor singing telegram lady she <laughs> they pick her up and they just drop her behind the couch she deserved better she did avenge singing telegram lady okay 
So then Wordsworth is like, I know who did it. Yes. This is what makes this movie genius. Up until now, there's been some great comedy, physical banter, whatever. But this is where I think the filmmakers are geniuses. Because Wadsworth says, all right, Mm -hmm. I know who did it, and I'll tell you how. Yep. Sorry, I'm doing your job for you. No, you're perfect. (laughs) Oh, this is amazing. So, um, and then he starts to kind of, like, uh, confront people and... You start to find out, like, how people are related. So, like, the cop was on Scarlet's payroll. Plum slept with the singing telegram lady. Uh, Mustard uh, sold uh, bad goods to people. Um, Yeah, the uh, the stranded motorist was his driver during the war. So he knows about him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mrs. Uh, White confesses that Yvette slept with her husband. And Yvette also worked for Scarlet. Um, But then they really kind of, like, get to, like, ready to, like... Mm-hmm. pull it together for the f- this is like the first round of things and it turns out that Yvette killed Mr. Body and Miss and and the cook mm-hmm. and then Scarlet was the one who killed her right Yvette was working for Ms. Scarlet correct um and then they have the great like one plus two plus two plus oh, one so good. one plus one plus two plus one bit and that's super great and one awesome plus two plus one plus one yeah I don't know why I love that bit so much but it makes me snort laugh aggressively. It's so funny. Because it's so silly and so dumb. Because they've committed to it. But also the payoff doesn't come then. Yeah. It comes like two minutes later after like the FBI people come in and the gun goes off and like uh, the, chandelier sh- falls, the chandelier falls behind. And was like, wait, did I miscount? And he's like, oh, I guess I miscounted. One plus two plus one plus one. <laughs> right. <laughs> is and then the chandelier falls and we got that great freeze of of Colonel, Colonel Mustard, Mustard. <laughs> with like the chandelier bursting behind him and him being terrified yeah so that's the first ending the second ending is Mrs. Peacock kills them yeah and that's a, again Eileen Brennan gives a great performance of like Mrs. Peacock being so ridiculous was actually an a facade correct to get people to not take her to to, to not take her not seriously, take her seriously, but she's actually very cunning, a fucking genius. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. but then that's it's got that great bit where just like the Mounties, we always get our man. Mrs. Peacock was a man, <laughs> <laughs> and then there's yep. literally I, it's someone slaps him, someone else slaps person slaps him, and then Mrs. White. Springs his suspenders like it's just slap slap yeah. throwing like it's, it's just like the like the timing is so sharp yes and it's so good and the scene itself the way it's shot is like that was a one shot yeah and it's just didn't need anything else perfect um and then uh and she gets caught so the, <laughs> she pulls a gun on everybody and they sing for who she's a jolly good fellow and let her leave. And then the chief of police is outside and, uh, you know, confronts her and takes her into custody or whatever. Um, And then the third ending, which is... Is the best ending. The best ending. And what I love about this, and see, this is why I think the movie, the cinematic version didn't work, is because having those lead up to then this, this third ending and having it be... Those are two possibilities, but this is how it really mm-hmm. happened. And this one is the most satisfying. Right. The other two could have actually happened based on how they set the film up. Yes. But this one is so much more satisfying. So in this one, Plum kills Body, Peacock kills Cook, Mustard kills the motorist, White kills a vet, and gives us the dopest flames up the, the side, side of my, my face. Heaving breath. 
heaving breaths. I hate her. I hated her so much. Flames on the side of my face. Heaving breaths. Heaving breaths. Oh, Madeline Kahn. May she rest in peace. Another comic genius. Her timing is so impeccable. When she was in um, History of the World Part 1, and she's picking her escorts to the Midnight Orgy, and she does that song where she's like, yes, no, 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 yes, no, no, yes, no, 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 yes! The way that it's shot is you just see guy's bums and then her like because she's facing them and you just in the the camera pans and it's just their bums and so she's just picking out penises like you do it like you do for your midnight orgies and it just everything about her performance is just so perfect i mean her in blazing saddles oh the the what's your name tex i mean just everything that is Yeah. Are you in show business? Then get your fucking feet off my stage. I'm sorry. I don't know why I can't do a German accent tonight. Because that I don't know what that is. Is that Norwegian? I don't know, but That's I was terrible. here for it, it anyway. Bad. You can cut that if you want. I absolutely am not going to. Yeah, Madeline Kahn. Oh, my God. Yeah, she just is just so wonderful. And, like, oh, and her young Frankenstein. She just, yes! everything that she has done, she did was just wonderful. Oh, my, yeah, I, I think back of, like, Comedies that shaped my my worldview. <laughs> it's Madeline Kahn, is it? Yeah. A lot of them. Uh, she's great. So she, I went as Mrs. White for Halloween one year. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. That was fun. That's wonderful. She had Miss Fisher hair too, like that sharp black bob. It yeah. Was a lot like Miss Fisher. Mm-hmm. Which I did not pull off, but was a lot of fun for Halloween. <laughs> it oh. wasn't a great wig. I um, love Miss Fisher's murder mysteries. So Madeline Kahn died of ovarian cancer. Yeah, she died young. She was like only in her fifties, I think. Yeah, she was diagnosed in ninety eight and then died in ninety nine. Oh. Um, and she was only like, oh, she's fifty seven. Yeah, when she died, so sad. <sighs> okay, let's finish this up. Miss Scarlet killed the cop. Warsworth killed the singing telegram lady. It comes out that he's actually body and he's the one who's been blackmailing them. And it was all a lie. Exactly. To uh, further, I don't even know, I don't remember now what his reasoning was, but, oh, he used them to get, to rid himself of all of his informants. Exactly. To, like, get so, rid of the witnesses. And they yeah. did it, so now they're, they can't ever test, I mean, it's, it's. You know, he's trapping them further. Right. Um, but Mr. Green is uh, an FBI agent. He's a plant. And shoots Tim Curry. But if you want to know who shot Mr. Body, it was me with the revolver in the hallway. I'm going to go home, home and, and sleep, sleep with, with my, my wife. wife. <laughs> da 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 So good. It's... We just recreated the whole movie. Yep. So we've done the whole movie for you. I guess uh, you didn't need to go see it. Sorry. I love that movie so much. I'm not sorry at all because it's one of my favorite movies of all time. so good. So what is it, you know, out of all of the things that you could have brought to us today, why is this the movie that you were like, yeah, let's talk about it? So this movie, I, I don't remember the first time I saw it. I... It was one that was a staple of my childhood. My whole family loved it. So, and and we watched movies on VHS a, a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ask your grandparents what a VHS Everybody was. Everybody did. Um, but this was one we 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 watched a lot. This was a family favorite. Uh, we could all quote it to each other. So, like, 
and any member of my family, you say a line from Clue and they'll, they'll give you the next line back. Like we mm-hmm. all know it. Um, and so I think, um, like whenever you have to like come up with a list of like, what are your five desert Island movies? Like this is always on the list for me. It always is. So it's, there's definitely that, um, kind of association with just my childhood and my family, but I think it also just, it shaped my, it shaped my sense of comedy. And also to me is kind of the pinnacle of what good comedy can and should be yeah. for all the reasons like we've already talked about. Like it's, it's smart and stupid at the same time. Yeah. It's, it's silly without being senseless. Mm-hmm. Um, and the performers are all spot on top of their game. So committed to committed, their roles. And the characters are all really well developed and mm-hmm. makes sense. Like there's, there, there are a few things that are, a, a, like, if you go back and watch it a million times the way I have, you might find a few things that are a little a little rough, but, like, overall, everything that happens is grounded in who what these characters are and what they want. Mm-hmm. And even when you have, like, the exposure of deception, it's like, oh, okay, this is who you were underneath, but, the, but, it, but it still makes sense because of the role that they were playing in that, in that double layer. And so it just... You know, I, I, that's the kind of comedy that I always wanted to do when I was aspiring to do more stage work. Like, that's the kind of comedy that I wanted to do when I started doing stand-up. Like, it just, this is my comic sensibility is captured in a film. Yeah, same. It's, it's dark, it's witty, it's slapstick, it's all of these, it's banter, it's all these things rolled into one. Yeah, I love how fast talking it is. Yes. Yeah. Because that really harkens back to the, you know, the actual films of the 50s. Yeah, it does that, have that like, sense. has that snappiness to it that I really, really love. Jokes that, like, sometimes you do have to go back and watch a second time to get all of the, yeah. all of the jokes that are coming out. But it's... And the other thing I love, too, about it is that it is, it holds up in a way that a lot of films do not. Because even the things that are, like, quote-unquote wrong with it are things that are like, well, but this was supposed to be set in the 50s, so that accounts for them. Yeah. Also, I think it might help a little bit. Everyone in this movie is deeply flawed. Yeah, I everyone's mean, a mess. And it's spe- like, everyone's everyone's a mess and, and has committed crimes, and most of them end up being murderers. Yeah! So anytime <laughs> someone says something sexist or stupid, or problematic. It's like, yeah, these are not good people. Right. They are interesting. They're fun to watch. Yeah. But none of these are good people you should be using as a role model. Also true. I also, though, though think that it's really interesting because they all are characters that, like, have convinced themselves that they're great people. Oh, they're in the right. Right. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the moral structures of all of these people is very interesting. I mean, Ms. Scarlet is a procurist. She is... She's, she's a, a businesswoman. She's a pimp. But she is, in her mind, a, a fucking woman. entrepreneur. Yeah, this is the world's oldest profession, and she's just yep. doing what you have to to get ahead, mm-hmm. and that's the way the world works. Yeah. And all of them have a similar view set. Mm-hmm. It's, they're, they're all very selfish people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Confronted with death and mayhem. It's in, great. In a fantastic looking mansion. In in a uh, a very conveniently laid out mansion that does closely resemble a board game. 
<laughs> I bet that was just coincidence. Totally. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the other part that we just haven't touched on yet, which is something that I really love, is the costuming and the set oh. and the set dressings are so, so good. beautifully done. Mm-hmm. And that's something that for me, even when I was younger, like I, I think I watched this movie for the first time when I was like 10 or 12 mm-hmm. and I just instantly loved it. Like I watched it with my parents. Oh yeah. And when Mrs. White first enters and she takes off her coat and it's this reveal of the satin yep. lining and it's so glamorous. Mm-hmm. And like, I want to grow up to be Mrs. White. Yes. I mean, like, not with, like, the bribing and, like, the senator husband. Like, I'm oh, not... Oh, you mean, you mean Mrs. Peacock? Uh, oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Mrs. Peacock. I want to grow up to be Mrs. Peacock. Mm-hmm. Because, like, you know, I don't... I'm not marrying a senator. But, like, and I'm probably not going to sell secrets to foreign governments. Although, if the price is right... Hey, this is probably something you shouldn't say on a podcast. Whatever. Everyone now knows that teachers do... You. Teachers do not get paid enough. That's true. Anyway... Uh, but, like, her whole, like, look is just, like, mwah, fucking <laughs> chef's kiss. Oh, yeah, they're all, yeah, it's all great. I want her, like, weird-ass, like, head thingy. It, like, falls askew, which yeah. is another great <laughs> bit of physical comedy when she can't get her hat yeah. out of her face. Yep. I want that green coat. I want, I want it all. Yeah, Miss Scarlet's green dress. Yeah, it's all great. Oh, uh, everybody is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite character? That's a really tough one because they are all phenomenal. Oh, God. I... No. No. How dare you ask me that? <laughs> no. <laughs> I could give you an, a reason why each and every one of them is my favorite. Yeah. And all of those reasons would be valid. And depending on the day of the week, it would change. That's fair. I also don't have a favorite. They're all fantastic. It is the quintessential ensemble film for me. Yes, it is. Awesome. Anything that we haven't covered yet that you want to touch on? Um, the music is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, both, like, the the soundtrack and, like, um, the background music. And then also they have, like, some legit 50s bops. <laughs> Shake, rattle, and roll. I mean, that's that's great. I love that you just said some bops. <laughs> Sorry, jams? Is it a... No, what's the other one? Is it... No bops, is it? It's a bop. Yeah. It is. Um... <laughs> What is it that the ham bones say today? I don't know. What's um, a ham bone? It's millennial slang, Michelle. It's Gen Z slang. It's what it is. I literally work in a high school. I've never heard ham bone. I just made it up. Oh, bless your heart. Yeah. You are not a part of that group. I am a millennial, though. Okay. Think... You can edit this out if you want. Nope. See? But so I this, think we're done this here. This is what Sam does. Yep, we're done with <laughs> Awesome. I might need more wine. Fair. For our second thing that we're going to discuss today is the 1968 debuted one-act play, The Real Inspector Hound by Tom Stoppard. It was written in either 1961 or 1962, and he also wrote Arcadia, which is one of my favorite plays of all time. One of my favorites, too. And Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, which is another one of my favorite plays. Also fantastic play. Yeah. And it's a parody of specifically uh, that mousetrap-style parlor murder mystery uh, type of thing, and also tackles critics of theater. In a really fun and redonkulous way. 
play within a play, mm-hmm. and it's real dumb. The the fourth wall gets very blurred because the critics are sitting in the audience when they get pulled on stage. But then they become part of the play. Yeah, within the play, it's very confusing. Takes place simultaneously in a theater and at Muldoon Manor. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Muldoon Manor. Yes, you got it right. And the like somebody a critic is standing in for another critic um because the like he like called out yeah. his shift or whatever to see this see this play and so it back when theater critics had power and it was uh and yeah. people cared where they went yeah so um moon and bird boot the names are insane the names are fantastic uh, are there because higgins isn't and then in the play within a play there is a murder in the manor and it turns out that like Higgins who's the critic that wasn't there for his shift is the dead body on yes. like in the in the play within a play and then Burboots gets murdered and Moon becomes the ins- uh, the inspector to solve that crime and it's so Weird. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And fucking brilliant. Yeah, well, I mean, that's Tom Stoppard for you. Weird and fucking brilliant. Yeah. Why do you love it? Um, so, I love Tom Stoppard. I, in my previous life as an actor, I, I was in a couple of productions of Tom Stoppard plays. Um, Which ones? Well, Real Inspector Hound. I yep. was in it. And I also was in a production of Rock and Roll. Awesome. I was in Arcadia. Um, I actually never got to do Arcadia. That was kind of one of my, like, here are the here are the top three roles that I want to play. And, like, you know, the here are the plays you want to be Thomasina. in. I really want to play Thomasina. And I auditioned for a couple of different productions, and it never worked out. And I have moved. I have, I've gotten over that. But, uh. <laughs> I was Jellaby. Well, that's great. Jellaby's great. <laughs> um. I actually, I directed a scene from Arcadia for my directing class in college, mm-hmm. and Sam Ledoy played yeah. Thomasina, and my, and the guy I had dumped a week before was playing Septimus, and it was so fucking awkward, because we had to keep rehearsing, and I remember, like, the first time I'd seen him since he dumped me was at rehearsal, and afterwards he was like, hey, are you okay? And I'm like, yep, I'm fine, Bye! And I was, like, so fucking rude to him. But I'm like, also, you fucking dump me. Yeah. Like, How about you like, don't be a piece of trash? And I was, like, trying to give him direction. I was like, you have to act like you're in love with her. Do you know how to fucking do that? Oh, snap! Yeah, that was fun. So that, but that's, okay, <laughs> yeah. So I love Tom Stoppard, but, um, and I was, and I was in a production of Real Inspector Hound, which was very weird. And I honestly don't know if it was good or not. And I feel like if I were to ask any of my loved ones whether it was really good or not, I'm not sure I would trust their answers. It was a very... <laughs> It was a very, in- so it's a one-act play, and it's often paired with other things, but this theater company, they decided to do it as a, a standalone, and what they did is they just m- tried to make it super long. Huh. Not So th- the idea was that um, it just, they put a lot of air into it, mm-hmm. and not in a like, and the intention was to make it more like a, like a pinter play, like just very wrought mm-hmm. and tense. And like, it, it was just very weird and dark and interesting. And, um, 
I have mixed feelings about the the experience itself because I, I worked with some really wonderful people, but I also it, it, it was kind of a, a low point for me as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just I had a lot of self doubt. Was this in Boston? Yep, that was in Boston. And the theater company isn't around anymore, um, which is true for a lot of theater companies. But what, what's really, the reason why I put this on my list is not actually because of The Real Inspector Hound, but because of what it opened for me. Um, the summer before, well, I was cast on the show, and then I had some time before I started rehears- rehearsing, so I started doing some research on Agatha Christie, because, of course, it's a parody mm-hmm. of, of Agatha Christie's play. And I started reading Agatha Christie novels, and I discovered I loved her, and I loved her writing, and I fell in love with Miss Marple and Poirot, and um, it just... So my parents always watched um, Masterpiece Theater when I was a kid, mm-hmm. they would, and they would watch uh, the Masterpiece mysteries yeah i remember that edward gory intro yes so vividly and i always thought they were really boring and like (laughs) this is is back when we didn't have cable and we only had one tv so like if my parents were watching something like everyone's stuck watching it and like i remember tuning it out Mm -hmm. so i just had no interest and then i found myself just falling into this world of murder mysteries and it started with agatha christie but it has it has spread and you know I now have come to love Miss Fisher and all of these other novels. And like um, our our friend and my co-host, Sam LaDoit, she's always bringing me more books. Mm-hmm. And she's always like, oh, I like this author who writes about a, a lady detective in the 1920s. Here you yeah. go. And here's another one. And like, and I love them all. And I, I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have discovered that love and that whole genre if it hadn't been for this play. Yeah. So it's, it's on the one hand, like, I love Tom Stoppard, and I do love the play for itself, but what it set up for me was, like, this whole other experience. Um, and, I mean, on our podcast, we've talked about Agatha Christie novels twice so far. Yeah, you did Murder on the Orient Express. We did Murder on the Orient Express, and then, um, I forget what, what we, we were going to do a different book, and we decided not to, so we, we were like, what can we just do last minute? And so we did um, Crooked House. Yeah, oh, that's Which right. Was, I mean, because they had just come out with the it had just come out on, series. Amazon, on yeah. Amazon, and it was um, it was really fun ripping that. To shreds. Is it like it's? Is it John Malkovich? No, no, that's the ABC Murders, which they also did, which oh. was really bad. And that's the one you live tweeted. Yeah, we live tweeted the the that John one. Malkovich. Yeah. Uh, um, oh, so the uh, the one the other one was um, Crooked House. Crooked House was Glenn Close. Got it. And um, Ruth Wilson. Yeah. And a bunch of British people. Uh, oh, Gillian Anderson. Oh, right. Um, oh, I can't remember his name right oh, now. Oh, but Ron Weasley was in the one with John Malkovich, Rupert right? Grant was in the one with John Malkovich. Oh, yeah. Sure, you can say his real name. Yeah, uh, Ron Weasley. That's the one you meant. <laughs> I do that all the time, and I'm sure that it annoys all of my friends, but I will go back and forth between the actors' names and like the like the role I, I mean, know if them that's for. That's how you remember them. That's how you remember them. But my so my mom has a really hard time not not calling people by their character names and not thinking of them as their characters. So like, uh, did you ever watch Bleak House? It's based on the Charles Dickens novel. Yeah, with, and Julian Anderson was in it. And Julian Anderson is in it. So there you go. So um, uh, Anna Maxwell Martin played. 
uh, Esther, the lead character in that. Mm-hmm. And she's great. And we've seen her in a bunch of other things since then. And she was in some movie that I didn't like. And I was like, my mom's like, oh, did you see this? And I'm like, yeah, I didn't like it. She's like, but it's Esther. I'm like, no, it's not Esther. <laughs> it's Anna Maxwell Martin and a questionable script. So I didn't love it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so uh, I clearly, I love all things. I'm a huge Anglophile, so I love uh, a lot of British entertainment. But discovering mm-hmm. British murder mysteries. And <laughs> my husband and I joke about how there's just this genre of film and TV that I will just always gravitate toward, and it's British people killing each other. <laughs> and and this, for me, is what opened that door. <laughs> British people killing each other is a huge part of what I consume on film, on yeah. television, and books. And I, if it's if they're British and they're killing each other, I will, You're here for I will it. give it a shot. <laughs> um, if they're Australian and killing each other, it depends on if there's costumes. Like, it's... But it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's such a huge genre and I, I well, there love it, is. it so much I'm so glad that I was able to make that happen <laughs> I remember I was reading some book because like once you start reading certain things Amazon will like re- recommend stuff to you yes and and they'll especially be like hey this this ebook is on sale and I'm like well it's a dollar 99 I'll give it a shot so I tried one out and it was like a, a you know haunted house young woman uh, inherits house from a long lost relative she'd forgotten about. And I'm reading this book and I'm like, oh, this is pretty scary, I guess. And I'm like, wait a minute. She says she's five kilometers from town, but she just paid for something in dollars. Is this set in Canada? And then I checked and I'm like, oh no, it's set in Australia. I'm like, this is a haunted house in Australia. That means every single person in this book is speaking with an Australian accent and it's not scary anymore. Because once you realize the zombie's like, oh, I want your brains, mate. It's not, it's not <laughs> scary. I know you killed a Bruce. You killed that Sheila. <laughs> if you have any Australian <laughs> listeners, I am so sorry. <laughs> I apologize I profusely. Also, this is in terrible taste because Australia is going through like a crisis of biblical proportions right now. Yeah, and I hope you're we can, a terrible human. And I'm a ter- you can cut all this out. I will not cut out. All right, just I am sorry, yeah. everyone. Just so you know, you heard it here first. Anna's a terrible person. I'm a terrible person who talks <laughs> super hardcore trash like, about Australia in their biggest time of need in like, a long oh, time. Is your continent experiencing the apocalypse? Let me make fun of your accent. And make some really dated references. Like, when Monty Python did them, it was out of date. God damn it, Anna. You don't belong on the radio. <laughs> this isn't a radio, it's podcast. <laughs> this wine is excellent. <laughs> so that's why I love the real Inspector Hound. <laughs> Great! Bruce. Uh, the only other question I have for you is... <laughs> oh, go on. What... What character did you play? You didn't say. I played Felicity, the the tennis player. Yeah. Um, and oh god, so they 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 made a a a, a tennis tennis whites for me. Mm-hmm. So the woman playing Cynthia is actually a dear dear friend, and I I love her very much. She's about eleven feet tall and thin, and that's very tall. Gorgeous, like she is. She's a beautiful woman. And they cast me, and like there's a line of scripts like, like oh Felicity's cute, and then there's like Cynthia Muldoon is supposed to be like gorgeous, and I was like fuck, no one's gonna look at me. And they gave her like a dress, and she's like elegant and 
tragic. And they put me in these, these cute little tennis whites that, and like sneakers. And so I didn't love it. And then I was like, after dinner, they should, they should change. I should have a different costume. And I like tried to argue. I'm like, you should get me out of the fucking tennis whites. I don't want to be in tennis whites the whole fucking show. But I was. Um, I bet you looked so cute. I didn't. The, um, and then the actor. <laughs> I disagree. The actor who played. Oh God, I've forgotten the character. Do you have the list of character names? Um, no. He's, he's in a wheelchair. He's, he's the, um, I can't remember the character's name now. Um, but the actor who played that part, um, uh, uh, Gabe Kuttner actually passed away this last year. Um, and he is, was one of the funniest actors I've ever worked with on stage and off. He was so funny in that show and he never had to try. That was the thing that was infuriating. It was, he would just be like, meh, whatever. And then, and then give a line delivery that would, that was just fucking killer. Um, and I was like knocking my head against the wall, trying to be good in the show. And like Felicity's got like 10 lines. So it's also kind of, you know, what are you, what are you trying to prove? You're not, you're not the most important part of the show, but I was trying to, to be as important as all these other people. And like, Oh, they were so good. Major Magnus. Major Magnus. Yeah. And they're supposed to be playing cards at one point and rather, and so we, and we just never bothered actually playing, but we all pretended we were playing. And it was this very intense, like made up game where like whatever card you played next was supposed to win. So it was like, Oh yeah. Threes beat Kings in this version of pontoon bridge. It was a very silly time. Yeah, I got to work with um, some of my favorite actors in Boston, and just some really wonderful people. The the guy who played the the love interest in that. So it's it's set up that in the play within the play, there's a love triangle, and it's Cynthia Muldoon, Felicity, and this other young fellow, and then Simon, Simon, <laughs> and then once the critics step in, one of the critics steps in and hits a love triangle between him and Felicity and Cynthia, and then he gets murdered. Mm -hmm. So Simon, the actor played Simon. Is that Birdfoot? Uh, I honestly don't remember which one was which. It's yeah. been forever. The actor played Simon. Um, he had this ritual. He, he was a very handsome young man too, but he, like, I love him like a brother. We had this ritual where every night before the show, because he, his hair grows in so quickly. He's a very naturally hairy person. He would shave right before curtain. And because I'm who I am, I had to pee every night before curtain. And we had one bathroom. So it became this ritual. is like right before the show, he'd shave and I'd pee. And in the same bathroom, like there's like a, like a, like a <laughs> stall wall, but that's it. And it's like, well, we are brother and sister now yeah. because this has happened. <laughs> yeah. We're all going to pretend that no one heard anything, but like it just... It was, a, there was a lot of affection with the people in that show. And I remember a lot of that, that experience fondly. That's awesome. One of my favorite memories from my improv days, which is over a decade now, probably two decades, but I <laughs> refuse to do that math. Yeah. No, um, 2000 was 10 years ago. Shut up. <laughs> you get it. Yeah. You saying about your pre-show pee mm. made me remember um, my friend BP. He um, would take a pre-show shit. Yep. Some people do that. Before every improv show we did. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so funny because we would warm up and then like, like I would like 
put on lipstick or something and like you know some of us would like pee or whatever like get our water and like set it by the stage and stuff and he's like i'm off (laughs) and he'd go and poop that's an incredible amount of control yeah like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna hold this till this point and I'm going to release it at this point. I mean, I don't think I can't more... do that on command. No, and I don't think that it was a, he was like, you know, uh, holding it in. No, but like he's able to command. Like now is the time for you to poop, body, and the body produces poop. Yeah, I you mean, can't do that. Well, I do think that it was a, a training type of situation, <laughs> a Pavlov type thing. Yeah, he was like, it's Tuesday night, time to poop. <laughs> it's six fifty. It's six fifty. All right, well, if it's the same time of night, that's one thing. Yeah, it's 6.50. Like, just, pooping time. Pooping time is 6.50. Like, I just, like, I'm from, <laughs> from my days of yore in improv, where it's like, you might be on at 6.50, you might be on at 9.50, like, do you that's poop fair. three hours later? No, you gotta go when you gotta go. I can't believe, uh, this is ridiculous. Let's tell more stories about poop, Michelle. Anyway, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Good. Because I have two babies, and I have a lot of poop stories. I don't. I don't like this conversation. Moving on. What else do you have to ask me? <laughs> Great. That's the real Inspector Hound conversation. But But don't take my word for it. <laughs> Copyright LeVar Burton. So our third thing that we're going to discuss today is Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. <sighs> it came out in ni- uh, 1813 and uh, the working title was First Impressions. It sold over... 20 million copies worldwide and is a story of the Bennett sisters and their really mundane middle-class lives. Mm -hmm. So why is this something that you chose to add onto your list of art that you love? So similar to Real Inspector Hound, um, this for me was a gateway drug. Mm -hmm. Um, Pride and Prejudice was my first exposure to Jane Austen. Yep. And anyone who knows me knows that I love Jane Austen. Same um, these girls, yeah, same! Yeah, come on! As you are, like, <laughs> pulling up your Jane Austen silhouette socks. Oh, I came correct today, dear listener. <laughs> I have my Jane Austen socks on, and then I have a shirt that says Straight Out of Pemberley. It is awesome. Which is uh, a gift that my friend KJ gave me. Uh, well done, KJ. Yeah, nice work. The amount of gifts that I have been given that are Jane Austen based is beautiful and heartwarming and very weird. <laughs> because I no longer buy Jane Austen things for myself. You don't have to. I don't have to because everybody knows that I love her so much mm-hmm. that they just are like, Anytime somebody sees something that is Jane Austen-y, they're like, oh, Michelle! <laughs> and then they give it They to just me. get it for you. And I wish that I could say that I'm ashamed or mad or anything, but I'm not. Why would you be mad that you have awesome friends? I am a very, very lucky person. Yes. I have incredible humans in my life. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that's part of the reason that I started this podcast is Aww. that I was like, all of my friends are so awesome and interesting and wonderful and cool and they like weird, awesome things. I want the world to like learn about them, which is how this all started. Which is where we, and that brings us to now. Yeah. Uh, Jane Austen. Jane Austen. So the first Jane Austen I ever read was Pride and Prejudice. And Same. Um, I 
read Pride and Prejudice because, uh, and I don't remember exactly which year this was. I want to say I was 12 or 13. Wow. My dad's company had a Christmas party for employees' kids. Cool. And I... I don't know if they did this any other year. This is the only year I remember going. And it might be one of the things where, like, they tried it once, and then they were like, let's not do that again. <laughs> I don't know. But that's the only year that we went. Um, and so each kid, I think Santa showed up, and each kid got a uh, got a gift. And I remember thinking I was too old for it. Maybe I was 11, but I was not any younger than that. So, like, I felt like I was. it was a lot of younger kids, and I didn't want to be there. Um, and... Each kid got a present, and I don't know now whether, like, who provided those presents, like, if the parents provided them, but I got a copy of Pride and Prejudice, and I read it, and I loved it, mm-hmm. and not long after, I, uh, the, the miniseries came out, which, of course, that was the miniseries that converted a lot of oh, people to Jane Austen fandom. It is the miniseries. And then I saw Sense and Sensibility. I mean, like, the mid-90s was, like, a huge Jane Austen um, revival. So, I mean, yeah. multiple versions of Emma in the same year. And Sense and Sensibility and Mansfield Park and just, just all of them. And I, I loved all of it. Mm-hmm. I love anything Jane Austen adjacent. Yeah. Um, and I still do. So that... Pride and Prejudice, um, like at my, like the beginning, just cresting into my teens, like what does it mean to be a woman and an adult and an artist? And here's Jane Austen as a a pinnacle. And of course, loving the film versions of those books is actually one of the first things that Sam LeDoit and I bonded over and the reason Mm -hmm. we became friends. Um, Freshman year of college, we were like, walking back to our dorms together after some theater class and somehow it came up that we loved Jane Austen adaptations and we ended up talking a bunch and that's that is when we became friends that moment and now she is my best friend Mm -hmm. (laughs) other than my husband uh I have a podcast with her we are like partners yeah and I trace that back to this this book. I love so it's that. A, it's a big part of my life that came from from that fandom. That's wonderful. Yeah. So I've been waiting for somebody to bring me something that I love mm. as epically as they do. And Sam and I on her episode we talked about Psych, which uh, yes, I, I listened love. to it. Uh, yes, I love Psych. And so does Sam. And so does Sam, right. Pride and Prejudice is, like, such a huge part of, like, who I am at my Mm -hmm. core. And Jane Austen's my favorite author of all time. Mm -hmm. And I just feel such a strong kinship to her works. Yeah. And so I first found Pride and Prejudice much later than you did. Mm. I was in college. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Um, and actually, ooh, this is going to get juicy, everybody. Um, <gasps> Let me get my wine. Scandalo happening. So um, I was in... Um, I was in an English class in college, and English and secondary education were, were my majors. And so I was dual majoring and um, I was in this class with Professor Carrie Kaplan, who is 
my queen. She is one of the best professors I've ever had in my life. Wow. I still think of her at least once a week, if not more. She is incredible. So like role model. Very much so. She's amazing. And I had class with her and we read Pride and Prejudice. And I just fell head over heels in love Mm -hmm. with it. I finished it in a night. Wow. And then reread it again before my next class. I like did not do my science (laughs) homework. I did reread this book. And I reread Pride and Prejudice at least once a year. But one of my favorite stories from college is actually, (laughs) which this is very sad, but there was a guy that I met in Carrie's class, and I will not say his name. That's probably for the best. To protect the guilty. (laughs) Did did he poop before class? He definitely did (laughs) pre-class poops. Um, Yeah, let's not use his name. And we um, we hung out all the time, and I was head over heels for him. Oh, no. And we had gotten into a fight and uh, the night before class, and then we walked into class. And um, he was one of two guys in this class. And the rest of the, the room was all women. And Carrie asked a question about, like... Um, you know, to specifically the guys like, you know, who are you drawn to out of the Bennett sisters? And (laughs) this guy looked me dead in the eyes across the room and was like, Jane Bennett is the best sister and the one that I would want to marry. Now, dear listener, I am a Lizzie Bennett girl. If I am any Bennett sister, it's Lizzie. Yeah. It might be Mary. <laughs> but I'm hoping it's Lizzie. Oh, no, I'm a kitty. And so, oh, no. <laughs> At least you're not a Lydia? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I might be a Lydia. I don't know. No, I don't think you're a Lydia. Uh, you might be a kitty. You, you do like some fun. I am, I'm a, I am fun. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. And you're sassy. Mm. I like to think I'm a Lizzie, but don't we all? Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Everyone likens himself to Lizzie. Yeah. But he so aggressively made eye contact with me and was like, Jane Bennett. And Jane is like mousy in my eyes mm. and is like very complacent and like a people pleaser and like doesn't share her true feelings about things and kind of is a little bit of a doormat. And so I was like so mad that like we had a 20 minute argument in the middle of the class. Jesus. Through the characters of. Oh. Yeah. But I, <laughs> I but I got an A. I bet that was fun for everyone else in that classroom. Well, turns out people might have talked about it after. Who's to say? But I did get an A-plus in that class. So, YOLO! Um, <laughs> phrase is meaningless. <laughs> it re- that phrase. It really should be YODO. Because you, you only, only die, die once. once. You live every day. Thanks, James Bond. You only die once. <laughs> Someone somewhere on the internet did an, an, 
a comic that was like YOLO, but is you obviously like owls. So that's what I always think of. <laughs> and that's the only way I will accept it. It's like, you obviously like owls. Because um, that makes as much fucking sense. That's that's true. The only thing I think of now whenever I think about owls is the staircase. Uh, the story of oh, the, the, yeah, the yeah. murder. Mm-hmm. Because this like, why? So... The staircase, this is very off topic, but that's okay. It's only slightly. <laughs> it's only more off topic than pooping before improv shows. Perhaps we should have drank a, a wee bit less wine. Or we should have drank a lot more wine. Who's to say? Anyway, the staircase is this amazing uh, documentary on Netflix. And uh, it's a story of a man uh, and his wife. I mean, it's a true story, though. It's a true story, yeah. Um, it's true crime. So, uh, the bottom line, this woman died in the home and he went to jail. His defense was one of the conspiracy theories around it was that an owl came in and killed her and like knocked her off balance and she fell down the stairs and that's how she died. And so every time I think about owls, I think think about about that killer owl. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Owls be vicious. You and no one talks about You it. obviously loathe owls. I mean, as long as they're not pushing me downstairs, I'm fine. Yeah, owls don't do that. Owls are afraid you of You don't stairs. know owls' lives. I know owls. I obviously like them. <laughs> what are we talking about? Prime Prejudice. Jane Austen. <laughs> okay. So, Prime Prejudice is a story of the Bennett sisters. There is Jane, and then Elizabeth. Then there is Mary... Kitty and Lydia. Mm -hmm. Five sisters, no sons. It's true. Which means that Mr. Bennett is going to lose his estate to Mr. Collins. Well, it's not that he will lose his estate. It's that when he dies, dies. his children get no share of his estate. Correct. Because anyone with a vagina can't own land. Mm -hmm. So that's actually not entirely true, but... For the way the that this, purposes of this the story, way that this story goes, it's entailed, which means someone wrote, someone else wrote their will in such a way that he could only inherit, on the condition that it would go to the next male after him. Yes, which is bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, the first line of this book is like one of the most iconic first lines of any novel, I think, in all of literature. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Ugh! It's so good! God damn it, Jane Austen. You and your turns of phrases. You sassy minx. Mm. So, the story comes about that Mr. Bingley is a man of substantial fortune, and he is coming to rent a house near the Bennett's home. Longbourn. Yes. And so Mrs. Bennett is like, Mr. Bennett, you have to go and meet right. them. Because the, the, the rules of social interaction are that the women can't introduce themselves to him. It has to be that the man of the house makes the acquaintance first. And then once the two men are uh, on good terms, then the women can be introduced to him. And so it's his responsibility to introduce his, his family to this wealthy single man who's just moved into the neighborhood and his five daughters with very small dowries and no 
uh, home once he dies, Correct. which he will, because, bitch, he is on a high-sodium diet, let's be honest. It's he is true. not living long. And he is not a big exerciser. No. Yeah. He has very bad cholesterol. <laughs> That's exactly right. So... And I bet he doesn't drink enough water. <laughs> yeah. There's been many think pieces written in defense of Mrs. Bennett. And I think there is certainly a lot to say about, you know, we, we mock her and her ridiculousness and her frivol- frivolity. But, like, your job as a woman in 1813 is to get married. The safest... And have a male heir. The safest economic mm-hmm. path is to have a man protect you. Yeah. And that is not to say that women did not earn their own income or that they weren't capable of it, but it was a lot more dangerous. I mean, Jane Austen herself supported her, her mother, and her sister through her writing, but it was difficult. Right. It was stressful. Mm-hmm. It was uncertain. And they had to rely on certain male relatives to keep them through the rough patches. So if you want security... That comes from having a man to protect you. A man with an income to yeah. protect you. The the economic security of, of a wealthy male. Yeah. So Mrs. Bennett's job as a mother is to get her daughter's future secure. Right. But she also... But she's a, ludicrous. She's a ludicrous person. On a regular basis has her foot in her mouth. Yeah. She, she is crass. She is coarse. She is thoughtless. Um... But 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 she's so human. I mean, she's not she's not a bad person at all. That bitch be crazy. Yes, but wouldn't you be if you were? No, <laughs> no, because I'm not a fucking insane human. She is. She is a ridiculous person. She is. She is. Stop butting. I'm gonna butt. But. But her position <laughs> is understandable. Yes. Moving on. Her ways of trying to go about it, though, are batshit crazy. The brilliance of Jane Austen is that she understood the way that society could be a trap and its expectations and the way it could restrict you, especially women. Yes. And um, that basis for the way Mrs. Bennett acts is very real. Mm-hmm. On top of that, she'd be a crazy bitch. Yeah. But it's, you know, we see this in most of her other books. I mean, Emma's a little a little different, but she has main characters who have these economic and social restrictions placed upon them. Right. And there's there's a there's just a lot of of complex um rules they had to they have to negotiate. Yes. And you know, it's so easy for a modern audience to look back and be like, all these women care about is getting married and it's like that's all they're able to do. Able to do. Mm-hmm. Like it's it is their job. Yeah. And it's um, you know, it's But not just to get married, but to get married to the right man socially and economically. Right. Yeah, it is it is complicated. Mm-hmm. And you can't marry outside of your sphere in either direction or right. you'll be shunned and looked down upon. So mm-hmm. making the most advantageous match you can within the appropriate sphere but hopefully with someone who won't be a complete shithole to you because he will control your economic future. But also, that was the least important thing in the eyes of your family. So, like, you see Charlotte Lucas, who she marries a man who... Yeah. She marries a man who it's the right social matching, the economic future looks good. And in Charlotte's mind, she's like, 
I, I literally think that Charlotte thinks he is, he is not going to be the worst case scenario for me. Literally, she is like, it's the best option of, of what I've got going on. Yeah. He is a friggin' idiot. I don't think But I can deal with this yeah. idiot. I don't think he'll beat me. Right. Like, and I, and I, and I will have a roof over my head mm-hmm. and some comforts. I'll, I can make and the And eventually, best of this. your house. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of like your house. I look forward to living it in 20 to 30 years. Possibly less if your dad keeps uh, laying in on the cholesterol like he is. And not going for walks. Seriously, you got to get him out the door sometimes. He spends too much time locked in that library. Yep. What Big fan of that it? study. Well, but here's the thing. I like Charlotte Lucas as a character a lot. I yeah. think she is rational and level-headed, and she chooses things with the ability to put aside her emotional investment in a way that I never once have ever been able to do in my <laughs> life. So I admire that in her. I think that that's a really good thing for a woman in the 1813s. Yeah. But I have never understood the choice until I read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. No. Oh. <laughs> and Pride and Prejudice and Zombies gave me the first, like, oh, that shit now makes sense to me because... She is uh, bitten and is going to turn into a zombie. And so she marries Collins because she's like, I got to have somebody to take care of my zombiness. Better get this shit done. He's the only option around. Let's kick it. And so she marries him because she's going to turn. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Wait, so how he's going to take care of her after she's a zombie? Yes. That's her rationale. She's like. Nobody else is marrying me, and I'm going to turn soon. What a great metaphor for spinsterhood. Yeah. It's like, I will turn into a zombie soon, and no one else will have me. Yeah. And I have to have someone take care of me, because I will be a zombie slash spinster. Yeah. I actually really thought that the novel version of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies was really brilliantly put together and constructed. Mm-hmm. and Because well, it heightens the stakes. Yes. In a way that I think a modern audience doesn't look at marriage is as high stakes as perhaps it would be for a 19th century audience. Correct. But it also, like, I love the idea that how they tackled class issues was they talked about where they trained. Yeah. So, like, the Bennett sisters, like, trained in China, I think, and, like, the Darcy's trained in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, be in like Japan was like the expensive one and like the Chinese one was like you get the job done and it's like down and dirty but like mm-hmm. you handle your business. It's not as fashionable. Yes. And I just was like all of this makes perfect sense to me. I loved it. And I was so excited for the film version mm-hmm. which we saw. We saw together. Together. And I was pissed because they added in that weird subplot with the Antichrist shit. And I was yeah, like, that F was... this shit. There was a lot of good stuff in the film. I don't think the film as a whole was brilliant, but there were some really good moments in it. Some the really first two thirds of the film I thought were dope. Yeah. And then. Well, and Matt Smith was hilarious. Uh, he's one of my He's my best Collins. Mr. Collins yeah. is. Well, he's, he's weirdly the most like the description from the book. Yes. Because as much as I love the 1995 version, and that actor does a great job, but yes. his Collins is he's older, he's... he's Very uppity, yeah, and then, but um, not in a funny way. Both him and then the actor who played... Who's also a great actor, I can't remember his name. The actor who played it in the 2005 version, he's really short. 
So they both. Oh, is that the Kara Knightley version? Yeah. Oh, I hate watch. I I live tweeted that one because I hate watched it. (laughs) But the the way he's described in the book is that he's he's young. Yeah. He's only like mid twenty. Like he's he's kind of like just starting out. Yeah. He's like early twenties to mid twenties. He's tall and kind of like broad shouldered and loud. Like he's. He's kind of a unformed lump. He's still like yes. not a mature man. Mm-hmm. I just think Matt Smith is a fucking delight, and Matt Smith's a fucking delight. Yeah, and then the proposal scene is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. And then, like, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of stuff early on in that film. I love the sisters who are practice battling in the basement and talking about the ball. Yep, but this uh, I when, loved it when Lizzie goes. When she walks to Netherfield and how high risk that is. Yes. And then, oh God, the the woman with the zombie, the zombie woman with the zombie baby in her arms. Uh huh. Oh, that like that is visceral for me. That's so like yeah. that is horror. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff in in the but the movie itself, I think, didn't quite succeed. I just wish that the screenwriter and the director and everybody really had like pushed past what they thought the audience could handle because the audience could handle what that novel was. And that would have been wonderful. Yeah. And they they felt like they need, it needed more. And I'm like, no, give me a few more zombies. And then like, give me some like ass kicking scenes. Like I don't need an antichrist. I don't need Wickham to be this like figure that he never was in the book. Yeah. I was very mad about it. (laughs) I know. Because I was so excited. I know. I remember. You were so pissed when we left the theater. I, like, <laughs> yeah. I, oh, man. And the acting was great in it. Yeah, great cast. All right. Anyway, let's get back to the original. Because now I'm now I'm all upset and no angry. Just the book. Yeah. Yeah, so the stakes are high, mm-hmm. though. And, you know, and I, there's a lot of themes. If you read Jane Austen, she didn't write a ton of novels. She wasn't... Uh, Prolific, Six completed. And she died partials. so young. Yeah, she did. Another one. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a lot of themes that come up a lot. You know, the um, the families of, of sisters. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, Jane Austen had brothers. They just were clearly not as important to her because she's mm-hmm. always right about women. And her best friend was her sister, Cassandra. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the Bennets, the... Dashwoods, um, the Elliots. I mean, she writes mm-hmm. about families of sisters. She writes about entailments and the economic restrictions placed on women. But it's all funny and acerbic. I mean, her wit. <sighs> yeah. There's some, there's some great lines in Persuasion that are just, oh, it's, it's, it's mean. It's mean. There's mm-hmm. some... There's some mean stuff in there. Persuasion is one of my favorites. Persu- don't make me choose, but if I had to pick my favorite, it might be Persuasion. Yeah. Don't don't tell Jane, but it might be Persuasion. I think that Jane loved Persuasion. It's so good. I also, so my tattoo that's on my forearm is a few years ago for my birthday, I decided to get a tattoo on my forearm of Jane Austen's words because she's my favorite. I wanted words on my body. So I reread all of her major works and kept a notebook with me as I read them of all of the quotations I might want to put on my body. And I ended up at the end of the day picking one from Northanger Abbey. Right. And I was a little shocked by it, but I fucking love Northanger Abbey. 
and I know it's like a hot take. Most people don't. But it is so witty and well done. I didn't love it the first time I read it. I did not love it the first time I read it either. But, so my tattoo says, uh, she had nothing to do but forgive herself and be happier than ever. And the reason that I chose it is the idea of I am always meaner to myself than anyone else could be. Mm. And I need to, like, cut that shit out. And also, I think, obviously, barring mental health issues and such, happiness is a choice. Yeah. And you can choose how you react to things. And you can choose a a more positive path. Mm -hmm. But also, the comedian in me has really decided, like, and this is what kind of sold me on it as my tattoo, is that uh, this part comes when she, um, she has just the day before accuse the man who will become her husband her that so she's staying in his house and she says to him i think that your dad killed your mom and he's like what no my mom just got real sick and died what and she's like oh oops and like runs off mortified wakes up the next day and says she had nothing to do but forgive herself and be happier than ever and i think it's really funny that you're like turns out i guess your dad didn't kill your mom my b i thought it was so fucking funny yeah and so for all of those reasons um and a few more personal ones uh that ended up being the words i put on my body and every day it makes me chuckle a little bit i love because that. I love her, and I love her words, and I love how she weaves a story together. Oh, yeah. And I love that she writes stories for women about what it's like to be a woman. I remember um, a few years ago, a coworker who was a very well-read and intelligent male was saying how he's never read any Jane Austen. He's like, oh, she writes for women. And, he, and I'm like... I don't, I don't agree with that. And, and that actually bothers me a lot. I wish more, more men read Jane Austen. I agree. I wish more men were willing to read works written by women about a female experience. Mm -hmm. It it doesn't degrade your masculinity. No. (laughs) It doesn't make you less of a man. No. It makes you more of a man. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like, oh God. And this guy was like all, uh, the sun also rises. What is that? Uh, I can't think of his name right now. Hemingway. Yeah. All about Hemingway. Ugh. And and he was like, well, sorry. He's like, I love Hemingway. I've never read any Jane Austen. And I'm like, oh no, he was saying Hemingway's better than Jane Austen. I'm like, have you read any Jane Austen? He's like, no, she writes for women. And I'm like, do you hear yourself speak? I'm like, guess what? I had to read Hemingway in high school. You should because it Jane- was a dead white guy. Yeah, you should yeah. read Jane Austen and give it a fucking chance. Mm-hmm. Um, you can put up with Hemingway. Jesus Christ, I can't stand Hemingway. Ah. I know that, like, a bunch of people, like, think he's super important and stuff. Hot take, again, from Bonzek. I'm not into it. I'm not into it. And, like... He not... was a misogynist and an asshole. Yeah, it's, and it's not like, oh, it's not like his writing is terrible, but I he shouldn't... I don't think he deserves to be revered. And the fucking comparison of, like, Hemingway better than Jane Austen, I'm like, you aren't... You're, that's wrong. You're just inherently wrong. And also the idea of trying to compare them when you haven't read any Jane Austen. Well, that's the part that I have a problem with. If you read both and you're like, I'm still a Hemingway person. Great. Good for you. Because that means that it's just a difference of opinion. Right. 
But the assumption that the male voice is automatically superior to the female voice. Right. But that's the ingrained misogyny and sexism in our society, I think, coming out. And Jane... Oh, God. And... (laughs) I've I've read many I've read so many pieces about Jane Austen that I've kind of stopped reading them because I'm I've I've read it I can't say I've read it all but I've read so much of it that I feel like I've read yep. it all and I also I feel like a lot of the stuff that a lot of the articles coming out now I'm like oh you are trying to counteract another article that was counteracting another article and like I just I'm I'm tired of people trying to come up with a, a new approach right or a new vision and I'm like eh, I think we've said it um but. I did read something a few years ago about how part of what makes Jane Austen so fantastic is that is her, is her men. Mm -hmm. Jane Austen writes fantastic, fantastic love interests that are intelligent and thoughtful. And obviously there is a 19th century expectation of what a man is and what a woman is and Mm -hmm. without trying to touch that right because <laughs> it is the 19th century not the 21st century um you know back to pride and prejudice like people point to oh darcy he's he's tall and he's brooding and he's a jerk i'm like what makes darcy special is that elizabeth tells him i can't love you because of the way you have acted he takes that he doesn't hound her he doesn't bug her he doesn't try and change her mind he takes that and he, he really critically looks at himself and says what kind of person am I and what kind of person and what kind of person am I presenting myself as? Yeah. And I think he realized that not just was he maybe not doing as good a job as he thought, but also he was presenting himself and the way he was treating the people around him was not representing what he wanted to be on the inside. And so when he next encountered her, was not because he sought her out. Like, it, they encountered each other, and he went out of- Because she rolled up to his fucking house. It's like, uh, your house is really pretty, and I thought you weren't home. <laughs> um, he goes out of his way to be really polite to her aunt and uncle. Mm-hmm. He listened to her complaint, and he tried, and he looked at himself, and he tried to improve upon what he He became found. a better person. He became a- He, he did some work on himself. Yeah. He did the 1813 equivalent of, like, getting some hardcore therapy sessions Yes. In. Yeah. He said, wow, I have been a snob. Yeah. Uh, her complaint is that I've been rude to her family. Here's her family. They're not as wealthy as me. I am going to go out of my way to be polite to them and show her what I can do and that I am better than what she's seen before. Mm-hmm. I want her to see a better version of me and I want to be better for her. Yeah. Fuck if that's not, like, the ideal man. Also, he's super rich and he has a pretty house. Yeah, Pemberley's dope. Pemberley is dope as fuck. I just, Jane, <laughs> so Jane Austen writes this male, this man who is, yes, he is tall and handsome and rich, but he is also someone who values the opinion of the woman he, the woman he, in his life. He's not, yeah. he doesn't try and change her mind by being like, yeah, but I'm rich. He goes, wow, if I want to be the kind of person who's worthy of her, what do I have to do in myself? Am I who I, th- Am I inside who I think I want to be? I think it's interesting. Yes, but I also think it's interesting that so Darcy does the work with her and for her, but he was a great man in his home life before her. Yes, he was a great brother. He was a great boss. He like took care of his tenants and like 
his maid like gushes about how good he is. Yeah. And like he changed what you said, who his perception. Yeah, I think and I think that's what you know, Lizzie has the line about, you know, she, he and Wickham are fundamentally the same, rather it's the perception that has changed. And I think that's mm-hmm. true. Um, I know you don't like the 2005 version, and that's fine. I do not. But one thing that I think is really interesting is that the way they, they did it, uh, Matthew McFadden's Ugh. performance as Darcy. He's a dreamboat. He is a dreamboat. His hair's too long, but he's a dreamboat. That's easily fixable. <laughs> Sorry. I got a little sidetracked. But I think Him and Spooks? His delicious. Could I'm just gonna say a sentence. So sorry. It's okay. I forgot what I was gonna say. He, I think his take on the character is he's playing Darcy like he might actually be on the spectrum a little bit. Like there's some anxiety or some social disorders going on with Darcy. Mm-hmm. So it's like he's not really an asshole so much as like he he does not like being in groups of people he doesn't know. He's yeah. very uncomfortable to the point where he's rude. He makes it weird. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I wonder what kind of research McFadden did and, did, and I wouldn't be surprised if he'd kind of looked into kind of anxiety, dis- social anxiety disorders. Yeah. Because it feels like that's the way he's playing Darcy. And so it's like, he's rich, he's handsome, and he fucking hates crowds. Yeah. <laughs> and like, that's the take. Um, and I think, and I think that actually works very well with, with Austin's writing. And so when Lizzie meets Darcy in his comfort zone and in his own space, He's much better at being who he truly is. Yeah. And his perspective, you know, he goes to this ball at Meriton and he doesn't know who these people are. They don't come across well. He sees a bunch of women throwing themselves at him and his friend because they're the single rich guys in town. Mm-hmm. And that's all he and, and he and he treats people around him with contempt. and He doesn't see anything beyond that. And all of that to me would be forgivable. But... You don't got to talk shit about my girl Lizzie. But he instantly regrets that. Yeah. As he should. As he should. He grows. He learns. Well, and that's the thing. that's what's great about Jane Austen is she writes men who can grow and learn. Correct. And even though Darcy is like at the very low end of my favorite men in Austen. Oh, he is not at my low end. Really? Or maybe he should be. Oh, hot. That was a double entendre. Was that that a vagina thing? It was a pussy joke. (laughs) Congrats. Thanks. I hope my husband doesn't listen to this episode. Sorry, Steven. He won't. Oh, I hope he does. No, he'll listen to like the first half and then be like, no, I listened to it. Well, now this is our secret. <laughs> this is the test. <laughs> um, yeah. If Steven gets mad at you, you know he listened to the whole episode. The thing is, yeah, no, um, my uh, my favorite is Tilney. Yeah. I did not like Tilney at first. Really? I, the, because like I said the first time I read yeah. Nathaniel Abbey, I wasn't a huge fan. But yeah. it, multiple rereadings, revisiting as a slightly more mature person, watching the, the film adaptation with... Um, Johnny Jay- Lee Miller! So handsome. No, no, no. Johnny... Wait. We're talking about Mansfield Park or Nathaniel Abbey? Oh, wasn't he in both? No. Johnny Lee Miller is Mansfield Park and Emma, which is excellent that's my bad he is wonderful no yeah uh tilney is north Abbey, and tilney is um it's it's j oh jj fields jj fields thank you i'm like it's not jj abrams don't say jj abrams (laughs) jj abrams knows what he did and he's dead to me why is he dead to you oh i do we want to talk about star wars i mean i guess we have to you just said someone was dead to you i don't know if i can talk about the rise of skywalker right now do you do you need a hug no, I Do need, need a just... fucking hammer. Oh, snap. I'm, I have a lot of feelings. 
you're going to watch The Mandalorian, and it's amazing. And you're going to be like, oh, Star Wars can be good. Oh, shit. And then you're going to watch The Rise of Skywalker and be like, oh, mm, did someone not tell J.J. Abrams that Star Wars can be good? Bitch. Holy Look, there's fuck. a lot of very strong opinions, and, like, trolls will come for you if you post anything critical of The Rise of Skywalker on the internet, especially if you're a woman. But everything they did to Rose Tico was atrocious. They set up so many... They in, in their own movie, they set up things and then didn't follow through. We were talking about Clue at the beginning of this episode and how brilliant it is that everything has a payoff. Have you seen The Rise of Skywalker yet? No. Well, I don't want to spoil anything for you, but they set up a lot of stuff that they don't pay off. Ugh! It's so fucking I hate when the gun doesn't go off. Yes, there's a... There are Chekhov guns on every fucking wall that no one touches. That's some fucked up shit. It's fucked up. It's very frustrating. As you know, I like things to be made well. And this was not. <laughs> End of story. I don't want to spoil it for you. Please don't spoil it for me, but I'm sorry for your loss. I was very disappointed. I loved The Last Jedi so much. It was so brilliant. That was like by the guy who did Knives Out? Yes, Ryan Johnson. He is a genius. He's a brilliant storyteller. It's like beautiful cinematography, fantastic performances, great, great movie. Have you seen Last Jedi? No. Okay. So I'm, I'm too I'm, I'm too behind. So I'm a bigger Star Wars fan than you are, apparently. It's true. The Last Jedi I saw the first one with Ray. Great, great, The Force Awakens. But I saw it because I love Ben Schwartz and he helped voice BB-8. Well, BB-8's in the other two movies, too. Michelle. Yeah, but he wasn't in them. He's not in the first one, either. He's not actually in it. Actually, he is. He was a stormtrooper. Oh, what? Okay, we're getting off topic very far. Did did we? Did that happen again? <laughs> Anyways, I think Matthew McFadden may have been playing Darcy with social anxiety. That's my, that's my hot take. I don't think it was that hot of a take. It makes sense. I think, like, he's literally actually said that, so it's not a hot take. <laughs> so there's... But yes, J.J. Fields plays Tilney in That's right. the Northanger Abbey, and he is delightful. He is also in Austin, Austin Land. Land. which is delightful. Oh, what a dream. He's lovely. He also is Nev Campbell's baby daddy. I know. Good for her. Good right? for him. Good for them. I literally want to slow clap all of it. Love is beautiful. And Carrie Russell, mm-hmm. who is also in Austin Land. Yep. You know who her baby daddy is, right? Uh, the guy from the Americans with her, her right? Her co-star from the Americans, yep. whose name has... Matthew me. Reese. Matthew Reese, who plays Darcy in Death Comes to Pemberley. Which was lovely. Which is excellent, and it is Jane Austen meets British people killing each other, and it is full circle. That was P.D. P.D. James? James, yeah. Who plays who plays Elizabeth? Anna Maxwell Martin, who I mentioned earlier this episode oh. because she was Emily Cass and Julian Anderson, and my mom also calls her Esther. Pew 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 pew. And scene. This has been a delight. And okay, one more thing. Okay, the woman who plays Lydia yep. in Death Comes to Pemberley is uh, uh oh I forgot her name. She was and might still be dating Matt Smith. Who played Collins in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies? Lily James? No. Lily James plays Elizabeth in... That's... No, no, you're right, you're right. I'm sorry. Matt's... She's not dating Matt Smith. She was Matt Smith's companion in Doctor Who. She played Clara. Oh! She's Lydia. Who also went... Who left to play the Queen. Mm Mm-hmm. And 
yeah, this is why I got confused. She went, she left, went, left play Victoria. Clara, I can't think of the actress's name at the second. She was dating the actor who played opposite Lily James in Cinderella. Okay. So the, like the two of them did like We really swap. need Sam here, who's our human Google. I know. It's, <laughs> as soon as you stop hitting record, I will remember the name of the actress who plays Clara. Yeah. And I will remember the name of the actor who plays Cinderella's prince slash Rob from Game of Thrones slash is dating her. I'll remember it in a second. Okay. As soon as you hit stop. Great. Uh, <laughs> or we can ask Sam. I'm so glad. <laughs> or you can look it up on IMDb. Yeah. I'll do some post research. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anything that we haven't covered about Jane Austen? I think we've Pride covered Prejudice. Jane Austen, Hemingway, British people killing each other, Victoria, zombies. Yeah, we covered Star Wars. A lot. Do you want to talk about Lord of the Rings? I mean, that's pretty much everything that's left. I have a weird thing for hobbits. That's not weird at all, baby. <laughs> I feel like we all. have to end this section on that. All right, all right, all right. Look, once you go furry feet, I can't. You nope. never go. I don't have anything. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> So, Anna, we have come to the time in the podcast where I give you the things that I think that you might love. Okay. Based on what you have brought to the table today to discuss. So, might I suggest, Anna, uh, that you check out the 1992 movie Noises Off. Oh, I've heard of this, but never seen it. Go on. So it was based on um, the 1982 play of the same name, written by Michael Freyan. The film is about a theater company who is putting on a play, and the film charts their final dress rehearsal and then two shows before they head off to Broadway. And there's chaos, and there's, like, interpersonal relationships, and everybody is... Is flipping this, insane. Is this with Carol Burnett? Yes. Yeah, so okay. it has Michael Caine as the director oh, and then Carol Burnett as like him. the aging actress. John Ritter is in it. Christopher Reeves, Nicole Sheridan, Mary Lou Henner. Oh my gosh. It's, cast. The cast is amazing. It is so silly and so dumb and it takes place like behind the walls of the set and in like on stage and it's just a really, it's a delight of a show and it plays with the tropes of theater in a way that I think based on real Inspector Hound, you would really love. Yeah. I, I have heard of that and I really appreciate you reminding me of that because I have not seen it and I, I think I would enjoy it too. It is very check that down. silly and dumb. Which as we've established, I enjoy. As is Clue. The next thing that I wanted to share with you is Meg Cabot's The Boy series. So Meg Cabot is my favorite contemporary author. Okay. She wrote The Princess Diaries. Yes. And she has a whole bunch of different adult novels as well. Oh. She also has like like four different YA series. She's an incredibly prolific writer and she writes in such a lovely and fun and engaging way. It's a great beach read. But so her boy series is four novels. Boy Next Door, which came out in 02. Boy Meets Girl, which came out in 04. Every Boy's Got One, which also came out in 04. So it was like like February yeah. and then December. And then The Boy is Back, in, which came out in 2016. And all four of in this series are 
stories that are told in a modern um, epistodal style. Okay. So it's emails, uh, IM conversations, journal entries. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them has like a receipt for like an airport and she like wrote in the margins of mm-hmm. it being like, this guy's trash, you know. Um, and it just is really fun and energetic and her stories are really just super engaging and I really love that she writes in a way that feels like real people talking. I'll have to check that out. And then the last one that I was going to give you was going to be um, The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue by Mackenzie Lee, which came out in 08. Mm -hmm. And it's a queer teen... um, historical adventure romance novel. Okay. Yes. I'm here for this. Um, so um, a young uh, uh, aristocrat named Monty goes on this, like, uh, final hurrah with um, his friend Percy and then um, a guy who's, like, watching out for them. And they're dropping his sister off, uh, Felicity, at, like, a, a school in France, I think it is. And then chaos ensues and, you know, they end up going on this adventure. Um, and the sequel is called the lady's guide to petticoats and piracy. Mm -hmm. And it's Felicity's story, his sister's story. And, um, she wants to be a doctor and like, nobody's letting her. It's the, the, she does, Mackenzie Lee does really amazing stuff with, um, all of, her characters and like where they lead and kind of like what lives they want for themselves. Mm -hmm. And it really is just, she does lovely storytelling. Awesome. However, uh oh, I changed my mind. I normally only give three, but now I apparently have given four because I really, as we were talking about how you love British people killing British people. I really love British people killing each other. Um, I wanted to share with you Maisie Dobbs. Oh, that name's familiar. So it's uh, a book that came out, uh, the first one in the series, and there's like a bunch of books in the series now. But the first one came out in 03. Okay. It's written by Jacqueline Winsper. And um, Maisie Dobbs, the stories take place between 1910 and 1930-ish. And uh, Maisie Dobbs started out as, like, a 13-year-old maid in a house of a well-to-do family. And she... um, But she was a voracious reader, so she'd, like, sneak into the library Mm -hmm. in the middle of the night and read books and stuff. She eventually got caught by the woman of the house who then sets her on this path of study mm-hmm. with a mentor and stuff. She then grows up and she uh, becomes a war nurse and she eventually becomes a, a private investigator. Okay. She is... Um, Maisie Dobbs? This Maisie the... Dobbs. Okay. Yep. And she's badass and strong and empathetic and kind and really lovely. And this her first investigation is a convalescent home for war veterans. Mm -hmm. And there's something hinky there. Mm -hmm. Um, So Maisie Dobbs is my... I am very excited to check out all four of those. 
Awesome. Those are some, like, some really good recommendations. Great. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, today. my God. Thank you so much for having me. This was so wonderful and so fun. I had a great time. Um, anything that you want to share with the audience as we're heading out? Uh, don't at me about Star Wars. I don't want to discuss it on the Internet. <laughs> uh, no. Like, like, should I plug my podcast? Like, yeah, probably. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Um, my podcast, uh, is called Adapted to Theater and Sam. I don't know how to do this, Michelle. I'm not used to this. Sorry, do you want me to do this? other people's podcasts. You're doing great. Thank you. My podcast is called Adapted with Anna and Sam. We love books. We love movies. We don't think you should have to choose. You can follow us on Twitter at Adapted Podcast, but you can find us on anywhere you would find podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, I don't know what else is out there. Um, so Spotify. You're on Spotify. Check us out. We've got a new season starting up in um, in April, but there's two seasons worth of material already on the internet. So hills, yeah, look us up. Awesome. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye. And that was our longer than normal episode. I hope that you loved it. I'd like to give a special thanks to Anna Waldron for being our guest, Rudy Sims for giving us his wonderful track. Senior Moth to be the backlay of our theme song, as well as Kate Harley for sound engineering it. I'd also like to thank Lisa Corner for giving us our beautiful cover art that makes me smile every time I look at it. And last but certainly not least, I'd like to say thank you to you, our wonderful listeners. See you soon. <laughs>